healing is possible. We share stories of people everywhere who have healed from their diagnoses. Powered by HealthRevolution.org I'm your host, Dr. Anup Kumar. Welcome to the Healing is Possible podcast. My guest today is Dimple Jangra. Dimple is a public speaker, TV host, Ayurvedic health coach, and founder of Prana Healthcare Center and Prana Academy for Ayurvedic Life Sciences. Prior to this, she was an investment banker, TV producer, reporter, and a copywriter. She was recognized among the 40 most influential under 40 by the Indian Achievers Club. And what really caught my eye is this story of an investment banker and TV producer becoming a Ayurvedic health coach and having this interest in Ayurveda. So Dimple, can you share with us how that journey began? Sure. I think I'm what I call an accidental health coach or an accidental doctorate in Ayurveda. Um, I guess life teaches you all kinds of lessons as you grow up, right? In the beginning, it was uh, pursuing all my materialistic pleasures and making sure I create a mark in the world and an impact in the world, have some kind of financial power and, uh, you know, social influence. So that began my career and it was like a career of all sorts. You know, I went through many careers, like you said, copywriting, television, investment banking. And I would saturate very quickly in every career because I felt like there was a gap or there was something that was missing in my life still. It didn't feel complete. And that's when I took a sabbatical from investment banking after returning back from New York. And I spent about a year traveling around the world first. I did about 10 countries in 11 months. And it was nice, but the last country really shook me. You know, I was watching a beautiful sunset all by myself. And I was like, I'm not able to share this joy with anybody else, not like a partner or a child, but I wish I could just share this happiness that I was feeling with someone else as well, like more people. So I came back to India and I spent about a year traveling around the rural areas. I went to the countryside in Rajasthan, in Gujarat, in Tamil Nadu, Kerala, Karnataka. I was visiting a lot of ancient temples. I was spending a lot of time with the countryside folks, people I've never met before. Okay, people who probably don't even own a computer or an internet connection or probably have no clue that there's another country outside India. And I found them incredibly healthy and happy. Like being happy was a state of normalcy for them. But in the cities, we actually have to ask people, how are you doing today? And if someone has been honest, they'll probably tell you, ah, don't ask, it has been such a rough day, da-da-da. That rarely happened in the countryside. You know, people were just normally happy. The blood pressure was always normal. The heart rate was always normal. They didn't seem to be fighting, you know, uh, endangering diseases or, you know, life-threatening diseases on a daily basis. For them, a disease happens right before death or it never happens. And for us, it's a daily struggle, you know, to be happy. Like I remember telling a friend, I said, you know, for us, happiness has become such a complex process you have to probably do research on like an exotic destination that you want to get to with your friends three months ahead of time, book tickets, board a flight, fly across, put on some nice clothes, go to a bar, get some alcohol in your system, and then you're able to smile for a picture. It's become such a complex process. And there was this one guy who particularly had an influence on me. It was the shepherd that I met on the highway between Gujarat and Rajasthan. He had about 1,000 sheep, and just as crazy I was, I stopped in the middle of the highway to take pictures with the sheep and you know the goats that he was rearing, and my driver was very familiar with this pattern. 
And the shepherd came wearing androgynous clothes. He was wearing a feminine pattern, you know, a skirt-like pattern. And I was dressed like a uh, male. It was quite interesting to strike a conversation with him on equal grounds. He's probably never been to school. And I had just returned from New York. And we were talking and I said, this is what you do every day? He's like, yeah. And I said, are you happy? And it seemed like a very strange question for him. He's like, why not? Clear blue skies today. I had good water to drink, good food. It's sunset. I'm going home to a nice meal. Why not? And that really struck me. That happiness was not so complicated when you're in a state of health. So happiness and health became synonymous for me. And I said, you know what, in my pursuit of happiness, now I must pursue something called preventive healthcare that allows us to live a more healthy and a more powerful now, rather than just investing in insurance, waiting to get sick to use that money. So that's how my journey began. And I discovered Ayurveda and there has been no looking back since then. If you're inspired by this video and want to take your health or the health and healing of a loved one to the next level, visit healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart. Sign up, learn to activate the most powerful engines of health and healing. healthrevolution.org slash jumpstart. So where was the connect now? So now you've connected health and happiness. And here you are, maybe this is the end of your, your, your travels around the world, I don't know, but here you've connected health and happiness. Now, how does Ayurveda come into the picture? So when I started uh, doing my research, I remember spending time. It's funny that I spent time in a Starbucks for about six months, you know, to do my research. And now I'm anti-coffee as a person, as a doctor. I tell people to stay off caffeine and this and that. Um, so I spent about six months researching preventive health care. And the idea initially was to create a retreat, a piece of land that would allow people to practice all kinds of preventive wellness practices like Ayurveda, naturopathy, homeopathy, yoga, uh, you know, and even uh, pottery or uh, clay modeling, which allows you to boost your immunity, um, grazing cows and sheep that also allows you to boost your bronchial health. So the initial thought was to do that. And probably what I was trying to do is put a lot of things on the same plate, which is not possible for one single person to master, right? Then you become a jack of all trades. And by a stroke of luck, I was introduced to Vaidya Ratnam in Trishur, Kerala, through a family friend who lives there. And uh, I spoke to them and I said, this is the intention that I have. I would really love if you could, you know, guide me, mentor me through the process and teach me a little bit about Ayurveda. So they were very impressed with the uh, passion or the ambition, I would say rather, at that point in time, because I was still a banker in my mind. And I said, I want to take this to the world and make it a global phenomenon, a household practice. They said, we'll do what we can. And they offered me the medicines. So to put my money where my mouth is, my uncle said, start a clinic first hire some doctors, therapists, and see where it goes. So when I started the clinic, I was busy managing the medicines, being the accountant, the receptionist, the assistant to the doctor, and I started learning in the process what was happening. Mm. I realized there was a gap. The way Ayurveda was practiced and communicated was two different things. Ayurveda is a 5,000-year-old science, and the way we're practicing now, unfortunately reflected that 400, 500-year gap created during the colonial rule. Mm. During the colonial rule, unfortunately or sadly, all schools and colleges that taught Ayurveda were shut down. And Ayurveda became from a primary healthcare provider to an alternative science. 
Until then, in India, we did not have Western medicine or allopathy. People learned how to prevent common lifestyle disorders by practicing home remedies at home. So say someone had cholesterol, they would have fenugreek water every morning until it disappeared. Mm. Someone had diabetes, they would have bitter foods, like bitter guard every single day to bring the sugar levels under control. So there was no practice of going to a doctor for lifestyle disorders because every woman in every household was taught these sciences, which was passed on through word of mouth for generations. And the Ayurvedic hospitals, which functioned as a primary healthcare provider, helped in reversing chronic diseases, which has been in the body for more than 14 days, right from multiple sclerosis, paralysis, cancer to clinical depression and common cold. So I said, okay, I see that there is a gap now because of the time gap, the language gap, because it was practiced in rural languages and now suddenly English has become our primary language, our official language. Mm -hmm. There was a lifestyle gap. You know, we did not have wheat back in the day. We did not have uh, cauliflower or we did not have, you know, oats. These were foods that have become part of our lifestyle, but which was not reflected in the Ayurvedic text or soya for that matter. The world has become flat and now we've been exposed to a variety of foods, which was not recognized by Ayurveda back in the day. So there's a time gap, language gap, lifestyle gap, communication gap between the doctors and patients. The patients couldn't understand what my Ayurvedic doctors were trying to communicate despite their deep wisdom. Hmm. And I realized Ayurvedic doctors were also so deep in their wisdom that they assumed that the you know, person in front of them understood the basics. So then I started bridging the gap with something called Ayurveda for daily life where we started breaking down and combining it with naturopathy sciences and addressing the gap, which was the lifestyle and the diet. And that's where I started researching more and more on preventive healthcare life science. And we took a lot of research reports from Harvard, Stanford, Atlanta, Georgia, Maryland University that stressed a lot on the importance of colon health and it being the root cause of 90% of the diseases. And I found Ayurvedic texts stressing time and again, that Vata is a root cause of 90% of the diseases which lives in the colon. I said, okay, wait, there is a lot of things that Ayurveda and modern science agree on. All I had to do was bring them together and bridge the gap. And I found more and more people opening up to me and willing to come to the clinic the minute I brought logic and modern science to prescribe the Ayurvedic medicines and treatment to them. Hmm. So that's where we are right now and luckily we have now seen 3,000 patients from 54 countries come to the clinic and recover from diseases right from post-cancer chemotherapy detox to clinical depression even multiple sclerosis we've seen some patients start walking again without physical support we've seen paralysis patients speak for the first time we've seen kidney stones gallbladder stones getting dissolved with just medication I've been able to avoid my surgery as well so now we're stressing more and more on preventive healthcare life science, but it has to be a marriage between modern science and traditional sciences. You know, when you said, when you talked about that shift from Ayurveda being primary to post-colonial rule being seen as alternative, you know, that's, that's one of the main things I talk about in terms of allopathy. You know, we have given this idea that modern medicine is primary medicine, but it's actually modern medicine is complementary medicine. Modern medicine is alternative medicine, like pills and surgery, essentially, right? Pills and surgery are alternatives. Like primary is nutrition, movement, connection, rest, the fundamentals that we're all doing in some way, but are we doing them in a way that builds health or that builds a sense of unease and dis-ease, right? And 
it's when I realized that this whole nomenclature of primary medicine, alternative medicine is totally on its head. I mean, that was, that was a relevant, that was a revelation because now the way we talk about things becomes so powerful. If, if we say pills and surgery are alternative medicine, wow, it really just kind of, yeah, that puts it in context, you know, and it's true. So that, that really struck me when you said that, um, can you tell us more about your story? You said that helped you avoid surgery. And I also read somewhere that it helped your father deal with gallstones without surgery. We see patients in the ER all the time with gallstones and severely inflamed gallbladders and the gallbladder is full of stones and it's, it's dilating the gallbladder and they have severe pain, they're vomiting. How do you, and there's no concept of just dealing of dissolving gallstones, you know, at, at, you can do antibiotics, you can wait for the gallbladder to so-called cool off is what we say, but that idea of dissolving it is not really there. So tell us these two stories, if you don't mind. Yeah. So growing up as a child, I was not blessed with good health. You know, for some reason, I think there was a lot of fetal distress or, uh, you know, malnourishment during my mother's pregnancy. I was born with epilepsy and my sister suffered it too, up to the age of 11. And then I went on to have migraines almost every single day up to the age of 20. And I thought it was normal. Like every day in the afternoon, correctly at two o'clock, my migraine would begin. And, uh, I had undergone four surgeries even before I turned 18 for little things, you know, I wish I had access to Ayurveda back then. I could have avoided all of them, literally. Uh, for example, I had a surgery for tonsillitis. I wish the doctors didn't remove it because now they agree that there's no need to remove it. It's just inflammation and you just stop avoiding sugary treats and stop eating sugary treats and ice creams, right? Then there was a deviated septum surgery. Painful, excruciating, and now we've actually been able to prevent surgeries for seven of our patients by just giving them a nasium treatment saying everyone's born with a deviated septum you don't have to correct it you just have to prevent inflammation of your sinus glands and then i had fibrocystic benign lumps that kept coming from a specific diet that i was on you know uh, i was suddenly introduced to soya which was never part of our cuisine and culture and my body could not adapt to that estrogen and then the muscle started lumping into a benign tumor which had to be then surgically removed and after that, the tumors came back again. It was a cancer scare at the age of 18. I had to go through a series of mammograms and tests and needle biopsies, which was traumatic at that age to not be able to talk about it to my friends and classmates because I thought I was going to die. And I was pretty sure that I had just six months left. Hmm. Just like in the movies, you know, when you're 16, you think, okay, this is the end of my life. And I didn't talk about it to my parents when I detected it the first time because I thought anyways, I was going to die. But six months later, when I couldn't breathe, then I confronted my mother and I said, you know, this is what I'm suffering. And then they took me to the doctors. We did a whole series of cancer tests to make sure it's not cancer. But they were growing so quickly that I remember one tumor was the size of my fist. And we quickly had to get me into surgery, remove the lumps. There were multiple of them. And then they came back after three months. And the doctor's like another surgery. And I was devastated. So then there was another surgery a year later. But again, the lumps returned. So this time I asked my mother, I said, can you please ask the surgeon to give me a written guarantee that the lumps will not come back after the surgery? He was an excellent surgeon, but I was like, can he guarantee that it will not come back? Because we're not addressing the root cause, which is my lifestyle or my food habits, and something is missing. And one of my friends introduced me to something called castor oil back then. It was a simple oil that you get at the chemist. All I had to do was 
heat up the castor oil applied on the lump on a daily basis, religiously, piously, twice a day. The heat from the castor allowed the tumor to dissolve slowly instead of clotting. It started with a simple remedy like that. And when I realized I was moving uh, countries and when I was living abroad, I would stay off dairy products because I didn't know the source if it was from a cruelty-free cow farm. And the lumps would disappear. But when I returned to India and started indulging in inflammatory foods, the lumps would reappear like a warning sign in my body. And I was like, okay, this has a direct relation to what I'm eating. And that was such an epiphanous moment. So I said, okay, you know what? I just have to change my lifestyle, my food habits, and the lumps have disappeared since then. And I didn't have to get a surgery. Hmm. And then the, uh, the similar incident happened with my father. My father had had an open heart surgery. He uh, has hepatitis B. He almost had to get his liver surgery done, a liver transplant. And a lot of critical things happened to him uh, at uh, early on. And uh, because of the number of medicines he was consuming on a daily basis for cholesterol, blood pressure, heart, quite obvious that those medicines do not fully dissolve in your body and sometimes have a long-term side effect. So he started showing kidney stones and gallbladder stones. And my brother was hell-bent along with my father to go get a surgery done. And I asked him, could you please at least ask the doctor what is the root cause of the gallbladder stones? When he didn't get an answer, I said, would you give me one month to fix it? I gave him a simple remedy. This is way before we started an Ayurveda clinic. It was a hibiscus powder, which is known to be in very strong diuretic. It helps in dissolving stones, but this is not for everyone. This was specifically for my father, for his condition. No two gallbladder stones are the same. I had to just give him hibiscus powder, half a teaspoon with half glass of warm water at bedtime every day for a month. He had multiple stones of 10 mm. But a year later, when he went back for a scan, they could only find two stones of 6.7 and 3.5 mm and the surgeon canceled the surgery saying, not required, sometimes the body does its own job. He did not reveal to the surgeon what he was up to. But this is how it happened. And then we saw similar incidents happening in my clinic after we started. Kidney stone. A patient was just put on medication for urine and blood in, in his blood. And within two weeks, he sent us a picture of a kidney stone that he passed painlessly for the first time in his life without surgery. You're saving yourself the trauma that a body goes through when it's been cut open, which is artificial method of fixing something. It takes seven years for the body to recover from the trauma of a surgery. Surgery is important. Allopathy and Western medicine is important, but it's an acute measure taken for an acute condition like a heart attack or a fracture or a car accident. It's not something that we pop on a daily basis to suppress our symptoms without addressing our lifestyle and our food habits. So it has to be a fair balance between the two sciences. And I think we've learned it the hard way. At least my family did. Yeah. How do you see, first of all, Ayurveda is exploding in popularity now. Um, in the US, I'm sure maybe around the world too, but I definitely see it in the US. It's becoming very trendy. A lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are benefiting from it. How do we balance the some of the, the quick things that we can do with Ayurveda. For example, you said for your father, hibiscus powder worked. Um, but we know that Ayurveda is so specific, you know, it depends on the person, depends on the time of day, on the season, on their store. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. So it's, it's not like a skin infection and, and you give um, an antibiotic and it doesn't matter almost who you are, unless you have an allergy, you're getting the same thing. Here, it's so specific and you were very careful to say, this is not for everyone, this is for my father specifically. How do we balance the, the tendency and maybe the desire to 
give kind of quick bits of advice to disseminate the power of Ayurveda or the efficacy of Ayurveda with the depth of the tradition, the depth of the wisdom, the specificity of that knowledge. Is it even possible? How do, how, is there a trade-off? What's your comment on that? Because you live in that space, bridging that, bridging those sides. Um, you know, like you said, it is a complex science and there are many layers to it. And that's where I think lots of people moved away from it because they found it to be very complex to wrap their head around. And also, like I said, you know, most of the content was delivered in regional languages in Sanskrit, in Marathi, in Hindi. It was very difficult for a lot of people to even adapt to it or incorporate in the daily lifestyle. Ayurveda actually became a last resort for many rich people in India. When everything else failed, they would go to Kerala and spend a month there thinking they did the body a favor, right? By leaving the business for a month and, you know, taking care of it. Uh, so Ayurveda has many layers to understanding the human body. The first layer is understanding that no two human beings are the same in the world. No two fingerprints are the same, right? All of us have a unique body composition. It's not one size fits all. So Ayurveda allows you to design your diet and your lifestyle based on your unique body composition that you need to find out first, which is called the Prakriti in Ayurveda. And there are seven unique body types. That's number one, based on your age, your lifestyle, are you a sportsman, an athlete, or a businessman, or having a sedentary lifestyle based on your genetic factors? Because there's information being passed on in your DNA about all the diseases that your parents and your ancestors have already suffered. That information is still in your body. Also taking into consideration the topographic and geographic conditions of the kind of country and the city that you live in, it has a huge influence on that. The climatic conditions and also the seasonal changes, which is now becoming very rampant, sudden changes in the season that also causes diseases, by the way. When we have a sudden rain, when it shouldn't rain, we know it's a diseased rain, right? And then we take into factor the symptoms. The symptoms of that person is literally the seventh thing that we consider. But for that, we've taken so many layers of understanding. Just like how your blood type doesn't change an entire lifetime. If you're born O positive, you remain O positive. You don't turn 18 years old and say, henceforth, I'm B positive. Right. And a doctor doesn't get creative and infuse any blood group that they have. You have to follow the protocol for the rest of your life. Ayurveda allows you to find out what body type you are, which was determined at the time of being conceived based on the health of the sperm, health of the egg, health of the uterus and the kind of diet the mother followed during pregnancy. Your body type is fixed at the time of being conceived and doesn't change an entire lifetime. You take it to the grave. So is it not important to understand what model or make your body is? If it's a diesel car, you put diesel in it. You don't put petrol in it. So you need to know what body type you are so that you can put the right kind of nutrition in it because food can be nourishing for one body type and poisonous for the other body type. Soya can be in a fermented manner, nourishing for the Chinese, but poisonous for my body type. Right? That's something I learned. Spicy food could be nourishing for someone who's a kapha prakriti or an endomorph body type who has a sluggish metabolism, a thick body, heavy bones, and a tendency to put on weight. Spicy food and pungent foods will help in stimulating his metabolic fire. But for a mesomorph or an ectomorph, mesomorph particularly who has a high metabolic fire, that spicy pungent food could trigger acidity, acid reflux, and even skin disorders because of excessive heat trapped in the body. So Ayurveda first tells you to identify your body type. And then the diet and the medication 
changes based on your age, genetic factors, climatic conditions, or topographic conditions. Based on the climatic conditions that you are, your food is different. But there are a few things that we can practice in our daily life. And this is something we started teaching during the lockdown because we saw a heightened uh, level of stress and fear. And it made us very sad because that is a psychosomatic origin of many diseases. And if we didn't stop it then for our students and patients, it would lead to far more severe consequences. So we started teaching Ayurveda in a five-day, 10-day, you know, 60-hour masterclass. And this is what we taught them. Number one is something as simple as a circadian rhythm. Follow the position of the sun. You cannot be devoid of the impact of nature on your body. The sun, the moon, the stars, the water bodies all have an impact on you. Rise with the sun, set with the sun, uh, size the portion of your meal based on the position of the sun, a small breakfast, a big lunch, a small dinner. Find your body type and you'll also find your ingredient chart, which is probably an exhaustive list of 100 items of fruits, vegetables, spices, nuts, legumes, dairy, sweetener, what oil to use, what salt to use, which is favorable for you and which is not so favorable for you that you must limit in your diet. Every human being, I believe, should identify the body type and at least follow this preventive lifestyle of knowing what your diet protocols are. Because no two people in the same family are also the same. And once we understand that, you know, science has to be personalized, we can actually avoid a lot of other disorders as well. So this reminds me of um, one of the stories um, when I spoke to another Ayurvedic physician who was telling me about a patient who had a polyneuropathy and could not walk um, was getting worse. He was actually a sportsman, this person, and eventually, and was on all kinds of steroids. And, and this patient's wife was an ENT surgeon, allopathic surgeon. And eventually nothing was working and he was getting worse. And um, they said, okay, let's try something else reluctantly um, because she was an ENT surgeon and kind of brought up in a different way of thinking. And they saw this Ayurvedic physician who said, okay, I can help you. And basically said, we're going to stop all the steroids and you know, everybody was wide-eyed, like, this is crazy. And they did. And, and he said, initially, it's your symptoms will get worse, but that's part of the, the detoxing period. Um, and they did. And everybody was freaking out, understandably, right? Because now he's like, pretty much totally paralyzed. And the family's upset. Everybody's like, what are you guys doing? And, you know, sure enough, slowly gets a little tingling in his finger, fingers start moving. And now he's back to playing cricket all the time, you know, like, no symptoms, nothing. Um, and it's just amazing stories that you hear. But again, that there was no prescription there that you can pick up as a farm at a pharmacy. Yeah, certainly there were some there were some Ayurvedic you know um, remedies or herbs and all of those things that that physician makes himself um, you know and 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 gives out himself. So with that kind of specificity, I think we really get to a place where anything is possible. Um, and that that brings me to the name of the show. The name of the show is Healing is Possible. So Dimple, with everything that you know, and you've been from investment banking to TV production to Ayurvedic health coach to you know uh, building a clinic, when you hear this phrase, healing is possible, what does that mean to you? Oh my God. I think my life and my story itself is an example of that for me. Healing is absolutely possible, not just at a physical level, but at a mental, emotional, and spiritual level. It has to be a holistic approach to your body. A lot of people end up spending so much time just maintaining the physicality of the body. And I meet a lot of clients who look perfectly good, 10 on 10 on paper, great body, 
uh, you know, abs and chiseled muscles and good skin and good hair with all that effort that you put in. Remember what you put your energy into grows, obviously. You put your energy into looking good and your skin and your hair, you look great. But they come to us completely broken and devastated. And it makes me so sad that they're influencing the youth with their appearances without revealing the true side, yeah. which is that they're suffering with a couple of symptoms at a physical level, like a damaged liver and uh, high creatine levels, high cholesterol, or a lot of them come, uh, bodybuilders have come to us with colon health issues and even colon cancer. And I was like, you look so perfect on the outside. And mental health and emotional health is probably the most neglected, at least in our country in India, because therapy is something that has been frowned upon for many years in India, because you just have a big joint family, take a slap on the back, speak to a family member, and you get all right. Healing has to be done at all levels. It is not a one-sided approach. And a lot of people are now getting addicted to, you know, just healing with say probably crystals or moonlight or water, you know, that gives you a temporary relief and a temporary release of serotonin in your body, but you're not addressing the root causes, then you have to be ready for the consequences. stories shared here are the experiences of the speakers. They're not intended as medical advice. Join our network or simply share your story at healthrevolution.org. Healing is possible.